Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brookmarkle, and coming up on the program, 42 years after his death, Elvis Presley remains an icon of popular culture. We'll talk with Bob Keeling, author of the book Elvis Ignited. He played more Florida shows in that transformative year, 1956, than any other state in the country. And that's why I call Florida Elvis Presley's breakout state. We'll discuss the state of education in 1871 Florida. There was just a very difficult and uphill battle for Floridians after the Civil War, and that included the educational system. And we'll have the third and final segment of our series on the impact of sea level rise in historic St. Augustine. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Well, since my baby left me, well, I found a new place to dwell. Well, it's down at the end of Lone Street, that heartbreak hotel. Heartbreak Hotel was the first Elvis Presley song to sell one million copies. The song was written in half an hour in the Jacksonville home of May Axton in the summer of 1955, and the demo was recorded the same day. That's just one of many stories about how Florida was involved in the success of Elvis Presley. Bob Keeling is author of the book Elvis Ignited, The Rise of an Icon in Florida. Elvis Presley, I think unquestionably, was the Johnny Appleseed of nascent rock and roll in the peninsula. And when you have guys like Graham Parsons and, and Tom Petty, they get the chance to meet or see Elvis up close and all of a sudden they become uh, just transfixed and it becomes a singular mission to become artists. And they did, they became great artists. It's almost like Elvis is the guy who threw the pebble in the water and all of these ripples still resonate to this day. And the 1960s, it's amplified even more when the Beatles come on the scene, but it's no accident that I would say Central Florida was the cradle of great guitarists in rock and roll. Um, and you can trace it back to Elvis. Elvis Presley played more concerts in Florida in the mid-1950s than anywhere else. Keeling shows how Florida played a pivotal role in Elvis's meteoric rise to fame. Tom Parker had some very deep roots here. The man who became his Svengali-esque manager. And Parker was the one who arranged for Presley to tour Florida early on. When he was on Sun Records, distribution was spotty. Elvis was the guy who said ambition is a dream with a V8 engine. He wanted to expand his career, his reach, and this was the way they did it. They brought him into Florida. They brought him into these outer lying states. 
and because Parker had so many connections here, uh, Elvis did four tours of Florida in 55 and 56 before he ever even went on the Ed Sullivan show. By the time he did that, he was already splitting time acting and his days performing here were over. And we're lucky here in Florida to have had such an intimate and up close experience with him as he's barnstorming the state. And each tour is a different phase in his career as it's starting to really explode onto the national scene. So the first two tours in 55, he's basically a nobody. He's way down the bill, but he's gaining confidence. He's getting a lot of notice. Tom Parker decides, okay, this is the guy I want to represent. And thanks to Parker, he was able to get RCA to buy out Sam Phillips' contract with Elvis at Sun. And then by the time he plays Florida in 56, he is a headliner. And then Heartbreak Hotel comes out, goes to number one, sells a million copies. His first record comes out in the spring of 56, goes to number one. So by his last tour of Florida, where he's controversial and red hot, uh, he is an established national star. So his four tours of Florida really bookend his rise to fame. And as I've said, he played more Florida shows in that transformative year, 1956, than any other state in the country. And that's why I call Florida Elvis Presley's breakout state. Compared with the sexually suggestive choreography of some popular music stars today, Presley's gyrating hips, shaking legs, and trademark sneer seem quaint. In 1956, however, many found Presley's movements on stage to be scandalous. The singer had been nicknamed Elvis the Pelvis. I don't like to be called Elvis the Pelvis, but uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the most childish expressions I've ever heard coming from an adult, Elvis the Pelvis. But uh, uh, if they want to call me that, I mean, there's nothing I can do about it, so I just have to accept it. It's like you got to accept the good with the bad, the bad with the good. You have to put on a show for people. Yeah. In other words, people can buy your records and hear you sing, and they don't have to come out to hear you sing. You have to put on a show in order to draw a crowd. Yeah. If I just stood out there and sang and never moved a muscle, the people would say, well, my goodness, I can stay home and listen to his records. That's right. But you have to give them a show, something to uh, talk about. Now, in this show, it, we've established that it is a show that you put on. Now, how did you get the idea for the rapid amount of action? Did, have you never seen anybody move around as much? No, sir, I never have. Uh, I just you never had any old showman advise you you ought to do it? Nobody has ever told me. Uh-huh. Where is the first time that you used the, the rapid My action? My very first appearance uh, after I started recording, I was on a show in Memphis where I started doing that. And I was on a show as an extra added single, a big jamboree in an outdoor theater, an outdoor auditorium. And I came out on stage, and I, I was I was scared stiff. Mm -hmm. It was my first big appearance in front mm -hmm. of an audience. Mm -hmm. And I came out, and I was doing a fast type tune, uh, one of my first records. And uh, everybody was hollering, and I didn't know what they were hollering at. Everybody was screaming and everything. And then uh, I came on stage, and my manager told me that uh, they was hollering because I was wiggling my legs, mm -hmm. and I was unaware of who was your manager. That Bob Bob Neal. Bob Neal. Okay. And, uh, and so I went back out for an encore, and I, uh, I did a little more, and uh, the more I did, the more they went. Before Presley's shows in Jacksonville, Reverend Robert Gray of Trinity Baptist Church said that Presley had achieved a new low in spiritual degeneracy. Presley was insulted by the accusation. 
I was raised up in a little Assembly of God church. Uh-huh. And some uh, character called them Holy Rollers. Oh, I see. Uh, well, and, and, and that's where that got started. I, I always attended a church where people sang, stood up and sang in the choir and, and, uh, and worshiped God, you know? Uh-huh. And I, I have never used the expression Holy Roller. Do you still attend church? Uh, every opportunity I get. I'm, I don't have as much uh, opportunity as I used to because I'm on the road most of the time. In the Holiness Church, do they have peppy music? Peppy music? Mm -hmm. They sing uh, hymns and spirituals. They sing spiritual songs. Every do they song. sing them at fast tempo? Uh, yes, sir, they do sometimes. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you think you transfer some of that rhythm into your... That's singing? not it. Uh, I, I, that's not it at all. They, they was, there was some article came out where I got the jumping around from my religion. My religion yeah. has nothing to do with what I do now. Uh -huh. uh, because uh, the type of stuff I do now is, is not religious music. Um, and uh, my, my religious background has nothing to do with the way I sing. Elvis Presley spoke with Bob Hoffer backstage at a concert in St. Petersburg on August 7, 1956. Younger people may look at Elvis and wonder what all the controversy was about, but Elvis did upset many in the establishment. Bob Keeling. He did. He was, he was kind of a square peg, and especially the fellow artists really didn't quite know what to make of him. And some of them would say, son, you got to settle down. That's kind of dirty, you know, fair and young being one of them. But he saw the reaction of the girls in the audience, the crowds in general. And he said, as long as they keep coming and they keep reacting that way, we're going to give them what they want. And that's what he did. And uh, it, it also can't be forgotten, his tremendous talent, his genre-breaking voice. He could do anything. He could sing the phone book if he wanted to. And that really is the, you know, that, that is the bedrock for people's interest. And you, you sort of separate the pretenders from the contenders by billboard success. And certainly Presley had that as well. After serving in the Army, Elvis returned to Florida in 1960 to record a special with Frank Sinatra, and in 1961 he filmed what is generally considered to be his best movie, Follow That Dream. Follow That Dream is based on a novel called Pioneer Go Home. Tom Parker followed his dream in Florida. This was a serious thing to him. Now the movie is a bit tongue-in-cheek, and it's a bit corn-pone, but Parker, this was a serious story about coming down to Florida and staking his claim and um, getting out of prison and, and having to rebuild his life, and boy, didn't he. So uh, Follow That Dream was based on this novel, Pioneer Go Home, where there were some folks who claimed squatters' rights to attractive land under a bridge in southwest Florida, and that's what the movie is based on. And if you watch it, maybe it's not Elvis's greatest film, but it's regarded as one of his, his better efforts, and there's some good acting in it. And I think the best part is you just have all of these wonderful images of Presley, still young, still vibrant, still in full range of his, of his talents, and he's going through all these beautiful old Florida scenes. The Inverness Courthouse, where the big climactic scene is shot there, and he's celebrated there to this day and when they went to renovate that courthouse, they actually used some of the images from Follow That Dream to be able to renovate the courthouse. So um, that's a great place to commune with the spirit of Elvis. 
In all of his books, Bob Keeling explores the lives of people with strong Florida connections who had a significant impact on popular culture. Keeling has written about Beat Generation writer Jack Kerouac in Florida, innovative country rocker Graham Parsons, and the queen of Tupperware, Brownie Wise. Pre-Disney Central Florida history has been a rich vein that I've mined now for over 20 years, and I absolutely love it. And I think the reason why I decided to do it is this perception of when I moved here 25 years ago that, oh, you're in Orlando. Oh, theme parks. And I mean, that's great. You know, they're our number one employer. Uh, they're an economic engine. But as we know, there's so much more here. So yeah, and, and I had just been down to the Hemingway House in Key West, and I thought, wow, wouldn't that be fun to have something like that here? And now we have the Kerouac House in Orlando. Bob Keeling not only documents Florida history and culture, he helps preserve it. He was instrumental in establishing Jack Kerouac's Orlando home as the site of an ongoing Writers-in-Residence program. He worked to make Derry Down, the Winter Haven venue where Graham Parsons got his start, named an historic landmark and revitalized as a performance venue. He hopes his new book, Elvis Ignited, can be used to recognize historic sites associated with Elvis Presley. That's another conscious goal now is to try to leverage the research to root out and find these historic places that maybe have no recognition at all. I call it suburban archeology, span and that's really what it is. And I certainly hope with this Elvis book, uh, I think there could be a Elvis in Florida heritage trail, whether it just be online, whether it be physically. Uh, I've, I've identified three or four sites I think should have historic recognition tomorrow throughout the peninsula. And so I hope as, as this book spreads that there will be people who will be like-minded and maybe we can accomplish that. And maybe we get historic site number three, number four, number five. I'd like nothing better. Bob Keeling is author of the book Elvis Ignited, The Rise of an Icon in Florida. I don't be cruel to a heart that's true. Don't be cruel to a heart that's true. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of this program, watch the television series version of Florida Frontiers, and much more. You can also subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. Teach your children well. Their father's hell did slowly go by. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, in 1871, a federal report was published that included an evaluation of education in Florida. Yeah, that's right, Ben. What we're looking at is a fairly standard federal report on the overall condition of, of the nation's education systems by state, which of course includes Florida in 1871. And in the report, there are hundreds of tables and reports that deal with the demographics of the nation's school systems. They talk about truancy rates, talk about what is actually being taught in the schools. You know, this was a time when a, a kind of a classical European education was really in vogue. Uh, they talk about the differences between 
public and private education, how to use public funds to pay for education. That was a big debate in the United States at this time. So there's really a lot of fascinating information about the state of America's schooling systems during this time period after the Civil War. And again, it's broken down by state. So the beginning of the book includes these overall statistical analyses of how different states compare in terms of literacy rates, things like that. And then it it breaks down by state how each county, how each city and municipality is handling funding and things like that. So some of it is a little bit dry, but if you kind of step back and look at it as a snapshot of how the young generation of Americans that are coming up in the post-Civil War years, how they're being educated, it's really a fascinating collection of material. And unfortunately, this report took a very dim view of the state of education in Florida after the Civil War, didn't it? Yeah, it really does. The first sentence under the Florida section goes like this, quote, the information from this state is meager, unquote. And the second sentence is, quote, education encounters fearful obstacles, unquote. The bit foreboding when you start the chapter on Florida. But remember, too, that Florida was a Confederate state. This is only 1871. Florida was uh, uh, left the Union in 1861. It was a fairly small state, but was one of the hardest hit by the Civil War, both economically, in terms of its people. A lot of people died that were from Florida, fought for the Confederacy, and there was just a very difficult and uphill battle for Floridians after the Civil War, and that included the educational system. So by 1871, they were really kind of crawling out of this hole. In fact, Florida was only readmitted back into the Union in 1868. So it had only been a state. They redrafted their constitution in 1868, and they were still really under federal regulation and federal laws. So of the southern states that were trying to rebuild, Florida is really at the bottom of that list. And, And you can see that illustrated in this U.S. Bureau of Education report. And as you go through, the, the entire report for Florida is only three pages compared to some states that are 20, 30, 40 pages. There are only three pages of material. In fact, all of this data comes from reports given to the U.S. Bureau of, of Education from the Peabody Fund. Now, the Peabody Fund was started in the late 1860s by George Peabody, who was the very well-known American financier and, and philanthropist. He's considered the father of American philanthropy. He gave away a lot of his fortune to, especially after the Civil War, to poorer states in the South. And, and the education fund that he set up, a lot of that money went to Florida. So there were $1,000 here, $500 here going to different schools. So most of the narrative part of this report deals with just money that's being handed out as part of the Peabody Fund. Now, they say here that according to Florida's 1868 constitution, the schools are supposed to be funded by a mix of both public and private funding. But unfortunately, they say that the state tax and then the local taxes are so dismal that it's almost non-existent. So almost 100% of the funding is coming from private sources, including the Peabody Fund, the Freedmen's Bureau, uh, in the case of African-American students. So it's very, very difficult, especially in rural counties. When we flip over to the third page, there's a table here that lists the school attendance and illiteracy rates for each county. And you'll note that some of the larger counties like Duval and Monroe County, which includes Key West, were some of the most populous counties in Florida, Alachua, Leon County, Escambia. There's a high rate of illiteracy among African-American students, which isn't surprising because we have, again, this is just after the Civil War and and there were a lot of efforts to try and establish school systems for, for young people who were, many of whom were born into slavery. But you'll also notice that there's a list here for foreign born students. And actually the county with the highest number of foreign students 
students is Monroe County, is Key West, because you had a lot of students from the Caribbean and from Cuba and places like that who were coming over and, and who had grown up in Key West. But you'll see that there are extremely high rates of illiteracy of, of students who either cannot write and read or both. It's particularly high, again, amongst African-American students based on this report. And this report wasn't even compiled by the state. This is how bad the education system was. They couldn't even get these numbers together. The numbers come from the U.S. federal census, so they're actually borrowing from an early census report. And out of Florida's 39 counties in Florida in 1871, only 26 had actually organized their school districts at that time and could create school systems. So only 26 out of 39 counties, which were the school districts at that time, Only 26 of them actually had active schools within their districts. And of course, Florida's education system would continue to face challenges. uh, But after this 1871 report, education did improve somewhat in Florida, right? Yeah, that's right. As we got into the latter part of the 19th century and into what we call the progressive era, there was much more focus on early education and public education in particular. One Floridian by the name of Albert Russell really spearheaded publicly funded and compulsory public education, which was not the case in 1871. You didn't have to send your kids to school. In fact, you know, a lot of these rural areas, you know, kids worked in the farms and in, in the fields. They may have gone to school a few months out of the year, but it wasn't a requirement. So towards the latter part of the 19th century, we started making strides. But keep in mind, too, that by 1885, Florida had rewritten its constitution and codified a lot of these what we'd call Jim Crow and these segregationist laws. So for African-American Floridians, their educational experience was not the same as white students in the latter part and into the early 20th century. So there were certainly a lot of challenges into the 20th century, but it did improve from, from 1871 for sure. And challenges even today. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. To see the federal report from 1871 that we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. Don't you ever ask them why If they told you you would cry So just look at them and This is Florida Frontiers. Public history graduate student Levi Watson has been looking at the impact of sea level rise in historic St. Augustine. We have the third and final part of that series. Recently, the U.S. government's climate website, climate.gov, updated its 21st century sea level rise projections to two meters of rise by the year 2100. The end of the century may seem distant, but coastal cities around the world are already dealing with the effects of incremental rise. St. Augustine is working to combat those effects to protect both modern structures and the city's many historic buildings and monuments. While in St. Augustine, I sat down with Jessica Beach, an engineer in St. Augustine's Public Works Department. Beach is in charge of the city's stormwater program. I asked her about one of the most pressing issues the city is dealing with, nuisance flooding. So anywhere from 12 to 16 times a year, we get the tidal water backing up into our storm sewer system, and it floods roads and things like that. So we've been dealing with that for a very long time. However, the frequency, and I'd say the depth of that, is we're starting to notice it getting worse. We need to start doing what we can now 
to plan for the future. And so currently, yes, we're already vulnerable. It's gonna get worse if we're not able to implement some of these strategic adaptation plans on that. In an effort to identify the most vulnerable areas of the city, St. Augustine participated in a coastal vulnerability study. Phase one of the study used mapping technology to identify the most vulnerable areas of the city. The second phase suggested ways in which the city might adapt to and manage coastal changes caused by our changing climate. So we were fortunate enough to participate in this study, and that happened, I had mentioned 2015 to 2017, well, we had two hurricanes right in the middle of that. And that brought to light what the mapping is telling us, and we faced the reality of what that looks like. Hurricane Matthew, it was not a direct hit to our area, and this was 2016. It was about 30 miles offshore, and we had a storm surge of about seven feet. So when you look at elevation mapping, you project that through the city, and there was a lot of flooding within the city. So storm surge were already vulnerable as well on that too. When Hurricane Irma came through the state, we didn't have as much flooding that we did under Hurricane Matthew, but it still impacted a large percentage of the city. One of the areas that was hit the hardest by Hurricanes Matthew and Irma was the Davis Shores neighborhood on the north end of Anastasia Island. The city and the state of Florida are working on projects to improve drainage and prevent nuisance flooding in the Davis Shores, but some private homeowners are taking matters into their own hands. So if you drive around Davis Shores, which got impacted heavily from both of the hurricanes, but particularly Matthew, you can see a lot of the homes are being demolished and rebuilt much higher. So those are some of the mitigation options that private homeowners are doing to help address that. Even before Davis Shores was developed, this area was recognized as being very low-lying. Charles Tingley, senior research librarian at the St. Augustine Historical Society, told me a bit more about the area. So in the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of teardowns, and uh, if the house was wooden, people calling the, the house movers and elevating the house above a reasonable height limit. This is especially true on the neighborhood of Davis Shores, which is the north end of Anastasia Island, which was a neighborhood that was dredged up and created out of a marsh uh, by D.P. Davis in the 1920s. This is the same man who created uh, Davis Isles in Tampa, another very low-lying area. So um, these artificial lands um, are being recognized as having uh, real threats uh, due to rising water. During our conversation, Miss Beach showed me some photos of the last two hurricanes. This is another from Hurricane Irma. This is the high water mark on this wall at this home, and this is right next to Lake Maria Sanchez. So that gives you, again, perspective, if you will, of, of what these hurricanes do. The high water mark in the photo was a little over four feet from the ground. This photo is from the neighborhood that contains St. Augustine's National Cemetery and the monuments to the soldiers from the Dade Massacre. The distance from Lake Maria Sanchez to the Matanzas River is around 700 feet, and the cemetery is located between the two. Of all the low-lying areas in the city, this is one of the most vulnerable. Beach told me about the next major mitigation project the city is planning, which should help protect the area from storm surge. We've got retrofitting the stormwater outfalls to keep the tidewaters out. We're looking at stormwater conveyance upgrades right around City Hall to help move the water to the lake, and then putting in a pump station 
to be able to physically mechanically move the water out when it rains and then you have the flood wall to provide that added layer of protection from the height. While these types of projects are typically successful in the immediate, the future of St. Augustine and its historic sites remain in jeopardy in the face of sea level rise. Levi Watson is a public history graduate student at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen as a podcast. Find us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook. Production assistance this week comes from Bendy Biasi and Levi Watson. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.